Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hi, before we start the show, here's a word from Stephanie Miller. People say puffiness and under-eye bags are the hardest things to get rid of. Till now, introducing GenuCell Plant Stem Cell Therapy from Chamonix, specifically targeting eye puffiness and bags. GenuCell is incredibly powerful. Natural serum, they guarantee you'll see results in as little as 12 hours or your money back. Listeners see a dramatic improvement in just two weeks. A true Chamonix classic, GenuCell contains eight extra ingredients to significantly reduce the appearance of bags and puffiness. Plus, GenuCell uses uses patented plant stem cell technology to improve longevity with brilliant long-term results. Save big right now on GenuCell's risk-free introductory offer. Go to lovegenucell.com slash Stephanie, promo code Stephanie at checkout for an extra 10% off. That is lovegenucell.com slash Stephanie. You'll also get the amazing Zotique Deep Correcting Serum free when you order the most popular package today. Chamonix, the best skincare, best results are your money back. lovegenucell.com slash Stephanie. That is lovegenucell.com dot com slash stephanie that code is stephanie and now let the cartoons begin recorded live in the usa and covering the whole wide world right on this is the bob seska show presented by bubblegenius.com From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, May 19, 2021, and this is the interview edition of the Bob Seska Show on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. My guest today is Dr. Brandy Scalace, a medical historian and editor and the author of a brand new book titled Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher, the real-life story of Dr. Robert White, who successfully transplanted a monkey's head onto another monkey's body. I'm not making this up. It's a fascinating page-turner, and it's a little disturbing as well. So let this be a warning. Today's show might be upsetting to some people, so proceed with caution. By the way, links to purchase Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher in the description under this episode at bobseska.com. Meantime, if you like what you hear today, don't forget to subscribe to our bonus content at bobseskashow.com. Okay, let's talk head transplants with Dr. Brandy Scalace. Dr. Scalace, welcome to the show. Uh, I'm totally prepared to be freaked out today. So, in fact, I just <laughs> I just tweeted, today's show is going to totally freak everyone out, and I'm prepared for it, and I'm excited <laughs> about it. This is so such a bizarre topic. I mean, your book is absolutely one of the most shocking true-life medical stories I've ever read. And, of course, mm. it's it's all true. But before we dig into Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher, I want to know why you grew up underground next to a graveyard <laughs> with somehow a pet <laughs> raccoon who, by the way, could open the refrigerator. So I got to know a little bit about who you are and uh, how you came to write this book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I do think that my my early experiences probably prepared me for writing about weird history. Mm -hmm. um, I lived in uh, southern Ohio in sort of abandoned coal area, and we lived in this bunker kind of house. I, I think we'd always intended to build on top of it, but it just never happened. So the only person who lived above ground in my house was the black snake that lived up there and ate the mice that <laughs> lived in the house. So that was convenient. Um, so so what was your how really. how were you related to the black snake? Was it uh, like a distant uncle or something like that who just happened to move Probably, in with you? Yeah, or? like okay. you know, some people have Uncle Fester. We had we had black snake uh, right. <laughs> in the attic. So yeah, so that's where I grew up, and uh, it was in the middle. We lived in fifty acres, which mm -hmm. was surrounded by about I think two or three hundred thousand acres of old uh, AEP land, which had been turned over to kind of 
public hunting and public, you know, use land. So uh, we were out there a little bit and, you know, the kind of out there where having a pet raccoon isn't even all that weird among your nearest neighbors. Um, and I had ra- I bottle fed and raised a raccoon whose mother had been hit by a car. Oh. Uh, and uh, yeah, so they do. They have little hands, little fingers, and that means they can get into everything, uh, including the refrigerator. And she raided it one day while I was at school. I came home and I just followed a trail of marshmallow and hot dog bits into the living room where she had passed out in a food coma, distended stomach with little bits of marshmallow stuck to her face. That's so funny. What was her name? What was the the raccoon's name? Just out of curiosity. (laughs) Spassy. Spassy. Spazzy? Yep. S-P-A-S-S-Y. Spassy. 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 (laughs) So how did you land on Spassy as the name of the raccoon? I'm so curious. She just wouldn't hold still, oh, and okay. uh, she got into everything, so it was just a fast-moving, small okay. creature who was kind of sassy and into everything. And, I gotcha. Uh, All right. But it slept in my bed. <laughs> wow. Okay. That... Yeah. I don't necessarily recommend that, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's like that commercial. There was a, a television commercial where this woman didn't have her glasses on, and she thought she was calling her cat into the house at the end of the day, and oh. it was a raccoon. I don't know if you've ever seen that, the raccoon. I have seen that. Yeah. yeah. No, this, this is, uh, yeah, she was, she was great. Um, we did reintroduce her to the wild eventually, <laughs> and she w- went off and, you know, did the things raccoons do. And about a year later, she came back with her kits to be like, I don't know, I guess I was like, I was like a raccoon grandma at that point, so... What did your folks do? I mean, were they involved somehow in, in medicine as well? Or was this something you picked up yourself? <laughs> only only from the receiving end. So unfortunately, um, my my family members were not particularly well. My my father had several different heart attacks growing up. Um, actually, oh just recently had open heart surgery. Wow. And my, my mother had beat cancer several times. Both of them had, you know, through the course of my growing up, were very sick a lot of the time. Hmm. And unfortunately without a lot of health coverage in this country, it was scary times. And so as a kid, you know, you feel very helpless. You want to help, but you don't know how. Yeah. And I just became really interested in reading about medicine and medical history um, while sitting in the graveyard near our home. So, <laughs> you know, nothing like reading about the Black Death while sitting on a tombstone. So, you know, I was kind of <laughs> set up for a career in weird medical science and history. Um, but but honestly, it's because, you know, when you, when you see that kind of, of medical catastrophe mm-hmm. unfolding before your childhood childhood eyes um it's it's both something you want to learn more about probably because you're looking for a way to kind of controlling that narrative and so um so that's that was my first introduction was reading about that stuff in books so what did you end up studying in school and how did you go from that phd all the way into uh writing a book about something that is kind of a fringe medical story what, what was that journey for you i've actually had about four careers at this point i think wow. um so i yeah i've I have collectively in my lifetime, I have a PhD and I have worked in an English department, a history department, Mm. and I had an office in an anthropology department uh, at different times. And some of this is because I'm a, I'm what you call a medical humanities scholar. And there's not, uh, there's very few programs that specialize in that. So usually you end up somewhere else, history, Mm. literature, anthropology, sociology, and then you turn towards that. So I'm the editor of uh, the British Medical Journal has a, a bunch of journals, and I'm an editor of one of their journals, which is Medical Humanities Journal. So it's a mixture of the humanities, right? So history, literature. I started off in literature, moved into history and anthropology. Um, but all of those things at the intersection with human health mm-hmm. and our approach to human health. And that that's medicine, but it's, it's bigger than medicine, too, right? It's, it, inco- it incorporates other aspects of health and well-being. Mm-hmm. So uh, so that was kind of my, both schooling-wise, uh, got my PhD, went on. I worked as a, a professor, a tenure-track professor in Minnesota for a time. I'm not from there. I'm from Ohio. Um, and uh, then I left that, which you're not supposed to do. You're supposed to get there and stay there. I didn't. I ended up working at a medical history museum mm-hmm. for about five years. I ran an anthropology journal. Now I run a different journal. And ultimately, on the other end of all of these shifts uh, of career choices, I I ended up writing books kind of full time. I had been writing books before. I'd written a book on death and dying in America and then, you know, other other texts. But now I'm basically fully freelance. Uh, I edit the journal and I and I just write books for for a living, which isn't necessarily something 
again, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that either if you like things like money. Yeah. But um, but it's exciting work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I can totally see that where this field of study could apply to a lot of different areas. I mean, that makes total sense because, for example, I do a lot of reading and studying about the Civil War and very early on digging into that particular topic you very quickly learn about things like amputations and how amputations were done or civil war medicine is a fascinating topic, I think for a lot of people. So I can completely see. Yeah. I used to, to, so when I, when I was at the medical history museum, we took a lot of kids tours in and I would always demonstrate amputation. That was always a big, a big fun one. So you'd have somebody from the group come forward and be like, okay, today I'm going to cut off your leg and you know, uh, without anesthesia, you know, it was mm-hmm. great. The, the yeah. students loved it. They, um, I was, I was like, who would like to help me cut off the leg? And you'd be surprised that the number <laughs> of them were like, I will try to help do that. So, um, they were, they were really fun. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So we had quite a collection of bone saws and various other mm-hmm. accoutrements of, uh, <laughs> of appendage removal. Well, which medical museum? Cause I have some close friends who are really into medical oddities and medical history. In fact, they were married at the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia. And I'm oh, curious yeah. if it's the same museum you're talking about, because it's equally not. fascinating. So I've done some research work there. Yeah. Um, I know the curator there. I've done some research work. Anna Doty is the curator. She's great. No, I was at the, so I'm back in Cleveland now where I, I was originally an Ohioan. Mm-hmm. So um, I worked at the Dittrich Medical uh, History Center and Museum, which was part of Case Western Reserve University. I worked there for about, I think, five years, yeah. roughly, Interesting. Um, before I left. And mm. they, they were more of a medical technology museum, whereas the Mütter has specimens and things in jars and such like we were more like here's the stuff that you use to cut off the things that go in jars and so we we had the technological aspect right. of that absolutely well you know what i i'm dying to talk about dr robert white uh and before we skip ahead to what he actually accomplished in 1971 let's start from the beginning Without spoiling too much, of course, because I, I mean, I desperately want to talk about every detail of your book. But so who <laughs> yeah. was who was Dr. White and how did he end up dedicating his life work to transplanting people's heads? <laughs> well, you know, he was a curious individual. I think what I love about Dr. Robert White is that you cannot put this person in a box. Like yeah. he did so many things. When I first became interested, basically... Uh, the the origin story of this book is is peculiar in mm. itself. Uh, I have a friend who is a, a brain surgeon, trauma surgeon, and he invited me down to his office to show me something. And when I open this, he hands me a shoebox. In the shoebox is the early lab notebook hmm. of Dr. Robert White, and it's all talking. It's old, and it's got pasted and stuff, and it's got little flecks of dried blood. And I felt like uh, in Young Frankenstein, when they go into the library and find the book that says how I did it, I sort of have that sort of moment right, <laughs> right. Uh, with that book. But I had heard all sorts of rumors about him living here in Cleveland. He was from Cleveland, or he wasn't from here, but this is where he lived and did his work. And they sounded larger than life. They're like, oh, he was friends with a pope. Hmm. And I thought, mm-hmm, sure. Then I began to do the research and found out he was friends with two popes, Pope Paul VI and the like, personal friend and and uh, advisor to Pope John Paul II. I'm like what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, how, wait, how did that how did that come about? Like, how did he end up becoming right. friends like, with two people... two popes? I mean, you know, we're all friends with at least one pope. I mean, who among at least us? One pope. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, he, but two to have them both on the line, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but he he was nominated for a Nobel Prize. Mm-hmm. Uh, he invented and perfected techniques that we still use today. So for instance, we call it now therapeutic hypothermia. And he had begun uh, researching it as a way of trying to keep uh, animals at the time, but animals, people from becoming paralyzed after injury to the spinal cord. But then he realized that if you cool the brain down, brain's a very greedy organ, Mm -hmm. um, it needs less oxygen, which means it's less uh, it's more impervious to brain death or brain damage. So it just so happens that my dad having open heart surgery, they use that technique to cool him down so that it's easier to do a stopped heart surgery, et cetera. So, wow. um, so he, he was part of that. He was nominated for Nobel Prize by Joseph Murray, who was the first person to perform a successful kidney transplant. Mm-hmm. And Dr. White was there. He was at the Peter Bent Brigham Hospital in Boston when the first kidney successful kidney transplant occurred on the Herrick twins by Joseph Murphy, Murphy in uh, Joseph Murray, sorry, in the in the 1950s. So the other 
fascinating and exciting thing about Dr. White is he basically was active in medicine Mm -hmm. for a 50-year period that spans the greatest changes in transplant science and medicine and bioethics, as well as the civil rights movement, the animal rights movement, the Mm -hmm. fall of the Soviet empire, all of these things happened, the space race in this time period. And he was involved in so much of it. So he's, it's like a cross-sectional analysis of all the things technological medicine has been able to accomplish in this period of time and wrapped up in the middle of this is Dr. White's quest to transplant the soul. The soul. And so just from a technical point of view, uh, I mean, you kind of just said it. It's transplantation of the soul, which seems utterly, I mean, his colleagues must have thought he was nuts. Like, like there's no empirical <laughs> evidence of the existence of a soul. But at the same time, it seems to me as if the parlance should be transplanting the body rather than the head. Or I guess you're, how would you define that? Is it is it a head transplant or is it a body transplant? Because the head is the person and they're getting a new body. So it seems like that would be a body transplant. Am I, what's the nomenclature specifically? Is it a head transplant? Well, it's good that you bring that up because in fact, it's a little bit of a smart rhetorical move on Mm -hmm. the part of Dr. Robert White. So he began these experiments on animals as you do. And he performed the first uh, head transplant, cephalic transplant, on a primate, on macaque monkeys. Mm -hmm. And while he was working on monkeys, he called it a head transplant. When he began figuring out the protocol for human beings, he changed it and he called it a body transplant for the same reasons that you mentioned, right? Because Mm -hmm. he, to him, he was just performing an organ transplant. You were just getting some lungs and heart and liver and basically everything all at once. And it was going over to the head. So you're absolutely right. He changed the way he talked about it when it referred to humans. But when he did the first animal lab study, he called it a head transplant. And and was there kind of a a race toward this kind of a breakthrough? Were there a lot of different doctors, you know, people who were uh, neurologists and so on working on this experimentation? I know there was the story. Maybe tell about the story of uh, Vladimir Demikov's experiment in 1958 and uh, and maybe put that into context. Like, was there some sort of uh, competition between a bunch of different doctors who were all trying to reach Mm -hmm. the same endgame? There, there was and there wasn't. It, it all depends on your, your perspective, kind of. So really what you had was while there was the outer space race going on, there was also an inner space race. Mm-hmm. Once that kidney was successfully transplanted, everyone thought, my goodness, we could transplant everything, right? Yeah. We could transplant hearts. We could transplant lungs. But there's, um, there's a slight difference. Uh, it's not slight. It's huge. Between transplanting a kidney, you can survive on one kidney. Mm-hmm. And transplanting a heart, because we need the heart to still be beating when we take it out. But obviously, if we take your heart out, you kind of need it. So when do you you harvest a heart? When do you harvest a heart so it's still beating, but you're technically dead? Mm -hmm. And this becomes a huge debate around brain death. When are you dead enough to harvest? So while this is going on, all of these different nations, South Africa, uh, the United States, places in the Soviet Union, places in Europe, everyone is sort of scrambling to figure out what's the next organ we can transplant, how can we suppress the immune system so you can transplant from one person to another person without having it be rejected. And while you might think head transplant sounds really fringe, you you have to take a moment and travel back in time to the 50s and recall that we're not that far out from World War II. Yeah. And we're not that far away from the atom bomb and from suddenly we being able to control and harness aspects of the natural world that we, it's just mind blowing. No, nobody thought you could split an atom. So you have that. You have the fact that we weren't real sure what was going on behind the Iron Curtain. You had uh, government programs worried that the Russians had mastered telekinesis and that they might be able to move missiles around with their minds. I'm not joking about that. You can look it up. Wow. We weren't sure what was possible. So when the Russians, when, when in the Soviet Union from Moscow, you had a surgeon named Vladimir Demikov release some footage where he had transplanted the head of one dog onto the body of another dog, 
it, it just sent sparks through the world. You had people going, how did yeah. they do that? Christian Barnard, who performed the first heart transplant, tried to do the head transplant of dogs after it happened because he thought, well, if the Russians can do it, I can do it too. And, and yes, there was funding. There was funding to beat the Russians. There was this whole ideological wow. push about in the, in the United States where you could get funding to do projects because you, we were racing against the Soviet Union and they were racing against us. You know, I, I think I've seen a film somewhere, an old black and white film of a, I want to say it's a severed dog head that's still kind of alive. And I'm not sure if it's the Demikov experiment or what, but mm. there's footage out there floating around on the internet of something having to do with yes. a dog's head transplant. I'm not sure. Is so it? It's not Demikov, but it is. So I'm going to probably get the pronunciation wrong. I think it's Sergei. Bernienko, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm probably not even close, but it was the uh, experiments in the revival uh, or reanimation of tissue. Mm -hmm. And that was another film that was released. And that was pure propaganda okay. film that was released to show the world all the stuff that the Soviet Union was capable of. And some of the things in that video are, are real. You can isolate lungs and inflate them and all that kind of stuff. Some of them are less real. So the dog head in that particular one uh, was what they had just severed it and then filmed it before the lights went out. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, rather than keeping alive. However, Demikov did the real thing. So Demikov comes after that and he realized that the heart and lungs of a larger animal could be replumbed to keep the head of another animal, especially if it was smaller, alive on the same body. And so he transplanted a small dog's head onto a larger dog's body and the dog essentially had two heads. And, um, <laughs> it, it, of course, it's not going to live very long because it will eventually reject that tissue. But yeah. the, the concept was that a head could be moved and supported external to its original body. And that's something that opened up a host of questions for Dr. White. Dr. White, remember, is in the middle of this debate about when are you dead enough? What's brain death? Mm. Is brain death solely the, you know, the EEG? Is it reaction time? What is it that proves brain death? And he asked himself the reverse question. What's brain life? Can a brain live beyond its body? Yeah. And that's what he sets out to prove first. So how do we get to 1971 and Dr. White's experiment with the macaque? And please, please describe the film footage that you saw. Just uh, And by the way, at the top of the show, I presented a warning. This is going to be some disturbing stuff for some people, I think. But I don't know what it says about me, but I'm utterly fascinated by this, Brandy. I, you know, well, it is fascinating. Mm -hmm. it is fa you can't walk into a room and be like, head transplant. You walk out, people will follow you. They won't know what's going on. But um, I've discovered this <laughs> on several occasions. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, people, what are you? researching right now oh head transplant that's just you can't just stop there you can't like there's a lot of follow-up questions typically yeah um so the one thing the, it, it to be honest the only reason he does the head transplant is because he failed to prove to his colleagues with the brain isolation experiment that an external brain could still be considered alive mm -hmm. so in a funny way the head transplant was more of a like oh yeah kind of surgery so he started off with this concept that I will prove what brain life is. And to do that, he wants to remove a living brain. And I, I have to take a moment for your, your listeners. I want them to, to just realize that we can all picture a brain kind of existing outside of its body. We've got, right, Abby Normal, you've got a brain in a jar. Mm -hmm. But imagine you want that brain alive. That means the animal is alive when you remove it. Yeah and has to still be living. And so this is a peculiar, this was actually almost harder for me to get my mind around hmm. than the head transplant. And it is also, uh, the footage is shocking to watch. It's not easy to watch. Uh, I love animals. So it was, there were parts of this that were difficult for me. Yeah. But essentially he starts off with a macaque uh, and he, he's going to use a larger macaque monkey to be the body's sort of life support system. Why, why the, because uh, this also happened with uh, Debikov's dog. He used a mm -hmm. larger host body. Right. Why, why the larger body? Well, because you needed an animal whose heart and blood pressure could support all, not only its own body oh, and brain, gotcha. but another animal's as well. So mm -hmm. they, they used one. And what they did is essentially they slowly unplumbed the arteries and the venous, the various veins and things that are feeding the brain uh, from the monkey's 
own circulatory system and plugged it in with tubes coming from the blood supply of this other monkey. So they're, they're, they're also using hypercooling, supercooling to make sure the brain doesn't, isn't quite as needy, right, uh-huh. for oxygen in case there's any holdups. Uh, by the way, Demikhov did not have that. He did not have hypothermia. Hmm. Uh, he was just really, really fast. <laughs> and I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's one way around it, but it seems like it would be unreliable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're the fastest knife in Moscow. It's going to work <laughs> on you today. So, um, yeah. It's a, yeah. So, so he's, he's, he's doing this very meticulous and very, mm. it's very clean in the sense that when you're watching it, it's very, it's surgical, it's sterile. I don't want it to sound like it's butchery, but when they get to the point where it's just the head being supported by this other body and they've carved the body away, they then have to take its face and head off of the brain. And that to me, that, that got to me a little bit. Yeah. But ultimately I... they end up with just the brain, brain mm. by itself being fed by all the stuff it needs to be fed by. And it's hooked up to EEG and over on the graph paper, it's just ticking away. And white's like, see, it's alive. It's living. It's thinking it's still in there. That's still a monkey that's alive, but it's alive outside of its body. And all his colleagues went, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mm, we don't know if we buy that. Um, what, 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 really what, upset about that. what do you think the brain was thinking at that point? Because uh, I saw a picture of the EEG and there was certainly brain activity. So what was going on yeah. in that brain? It seems to be like it would be in a state of like absolute panic and confusion, wouldn't it? Yeah, I, I you know, I've always been often thought that what's probably going through its head is like, ah! But, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So probably just that. Uh, you know, we've, we've done experiments with people in sensory deprivation chambers, and it's not pleasant for people, right? Mm-hmm. And I think you, what you have with the brain excised like that is it's getting no sensory input. So it's hard to know exactly what kind of, of thoughts can still exist in that state. Um, mm-hmm. But White's colleagues were basically not willing to believe that that was thinking at all. They're like, I don't think that's still a monkey. I think that's not a living brain. It's interesting. We can study it. We can use it to test drugs and therapies and circulation and lots of stuff, but we don't think that that's a living creature anymore. And White was upset because that was his whole point. So he decides to take a page from Demikov's book. He actually goes to Moscow. uh, And I went to Moscow myself to look up some of this stuff. And I I found old equipment that belonged to Demikov. It was a fascinating trip. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to the uh, Russian museum there and some other things. But when White went, uh, he he went specifically to try and meet Vladimir Demikov because he decided that the best way to prove his point was to keep the head in, uh, to keep the brain inside its head. Mm-hmm. So have a head without a body that could wake up and look around and you could therefore prove that it was still functional. Yeah. So that is the, the dawn in his mind of the monkey head transplant experiment. And so he does this in 19, in, in, it's crazy because it's quite a long time ago. Um, you know, I think there's something about knowing that it happened in 1970, 1971, that is just almost more mind blowing. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, that was a long time ago. Exactly. <laughs> right. That's what I was thinking when I first opened this up, I was thinking, okay, this has got to be like, you know, turn of the century or something like that, like late Victorian me- experimental medicine. And there was going to be sort of steampunk accoutrements all laying around, yeah. but it's, <laughs> but it's 19, I mean, I was born in 1971. It's recent, recent history. So, yeah, it's quite it's quite recent history, but it's also like astonishing to me to think, I mean, well, we haven't really done any more. (laughs) So it's it's a peculiar like blip in in the history of of transplant. So anyway, he, he decides to do this. This takes lots of training. He has a big staff of people. He actually puts marks on the floor in the operating rooms because they're going to be moving around. It's almost like dance steps because he wants to make sure that everything goes so smoothly they have to prep both monkeys by, um, okay, so you know the way, I don't know, young listeners might not remember what this is like, but to have a telephone on the wall and you had a phone attached to it, the, the receiver was on this long cord. Mm-hmm. And so essentially, he needed to have the head of each monkey on a cord away from its body. Uh, and, and in that cord would be all the venous fluid. So the head is like on a pillow over here about three feet away from its body that it's still connected to with lots of coils of, of uh, tubing and everything. And that was because then they could much more easily rework the connections between each one. Mm-hmm. So you have a, a receiver head on a cord for this monkey, receiver head on a cord from this monkey, and you're going to basically swap. 
and they put that head over on the other monkey's body while disconnecting the previous head. So you've got monkey A's head on monkey B's body, and then they shorten all the cords, reattach everything, sew up the neck, and wait for it to wake up. And this is a long surgery. They started before dawn. Everyone's sweaty. Um, I'm watching the the footage. The, the room reminds me of um, some sort of sci-fi kind of thing because there's just walls of equipment everywhere and dials, and they're watching all of the life, you know, essence of the of the monkeys. They're keeping uh, keeping an eye on life support in all of these different ways. And there's people, and they have towels around their neck. They're sweaty. They're they're exhausted. They're propping themselves up on tables, and they're watching the clock, and they're watching this monkey who's still under anesthesia. And then, but by the way, Dr. White smokes a pipe throughout every bit of this. <laughs> Sanit- sanitary. A slightly balding, slightly heavy man with like big black frame glasses and a pipe doing all of this. So there is a vague, there is a little bit of steampunk element, I think, just because Dr. White was who he was. Yeah. Big personality. Um, and then the monkeys, the monkey wakes up. It flutters its eyelids. It wakes up. It can see. It can hear. It tries to bite Dr. White. It eats a grape. It's there even though it is no longer on its original body. And so he was able to like prove that consciousness that the, the monkey's selfhood anyway had mm. been moved over. Now white was Catholic. He did not think monkeys had a soul, which is probably why he referred to their transplant as a head transplant, but he did believe that human beings had a soul. And therefore after this completed surgery, he said to his staff, have we arrived at the place where we can transplant a soul? And that, those were his words. And for him, that's what this was all about. He's also a surgeon. I mean, I know this all sounds fringe and like he was just a weird guy. But in fact, he performed 10,000 brain surgeries. He, he saved people. Here in Cleveland, you can go down the street and just say his name and people will come out of the woodwork being like, he saved my aunt. He saved my daughter. Mm-hmm. He, you know, took a tumor out of my, my two-year-old son, that kind of thing. Um, he invented surgeries that never existed to save little girls. One little girl particularly had a peculiar um, birth defect and everybody told her it was inoperable. And he's like, I'll build a surgery and we'll fix it. You know, he was that kind of person. He felt that the brain was the soul. The soul was worth saving at any cost, even if that meant getting you a whole new body. And it seems as if consciousness is the, You could say that would be the more scientific uh, term for the soul. Is that what we're kind of talking about here? Consciousness in a, in in a more medical sense, because where Dr. White loses me is the concept of, you know, trying to apply medicine to the concept of a soul. And so I, you know, from a purely scientific point of view, looking at this in an empirical way, uh, the quest for the soul or saving the soul, transplanting the soul it gets a little wacky and <laughs> we're talking about in the context of something well, that's already kind of you know, wacky, but you know, generally in speaking the context of science. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the context of science, you shouldn't be doing a heart, a head transplant. In the first place. Right. Right. right, right. Uh, mostly science's view is like, don't do that. Yeah. Um, but you know, white did not see science and religion as separate. And this was one of the things that fascinated me about him. Is he just, just didn't see them. As a matter of fact, he was all like, this is all, all of my experiments are God-directed. I mean, he had no sense that there was any kind of separation between the things that he was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, when pressed, he at one point called it the living principle. And I think that's the closest he ever got to saying, okay, not soul, but. Uh, so he called it the living principle, the, the principle that makes you you. And we can call that consciousness. We can call that selfhood. But the other question that's raised by all of this is, are we just brains? Like, am I just a brain on legs? I I don't think so. I think our bodies are really important to, and for this, I I diverge from Dr. White definitely thought you were your brain, your brain was soul. That was it. Mm -hmm. Me personally, um, I have neurons in my gut. I have hormones. I have all kinds of other things that are related to the way my body interacts with the world, what I look like. Uh, all the way down to gender. If you think about the LGBTQ community that says, no, your, your gender and your body, like we want those things to align. That's why there's gender reassignment surgery. You know, to say your only brain mm-hmm. seems a bit naive. I, I don't think we're, I don't even know if our consciousness is only brain. Um, but of course, we don't really get a chance to find that out because the monkey can't tell us. Yeah. And, 
you know. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so you perform one on a person. <laughs> so, so if you had a, a head transplant, if you underwent this, let's say the technology advances <laughs> to the point where it's actually practical, do you think you would be you coming out of that surgery? I feel like that's a hard question to answer. Yeah. You know, again, uh, so I'm someone who has a, a, a chronic illness, okay? Hmm. And it's not terribly debilitating, but it's, it means I have some autoimmune conditions and I have, uh, my life is different because of that. I look at other, uh, for one of the reasons that I care so much about disability uh, studies and access over at my journal, I do a lot with social justice and access to medicine. Some of that is f- fiscal as- assets, uh, fiscal access, right? That's mm-hmm. coming from my background growing up with parents who had trouble accessing healthcare. My interest in disability access is because I myself, while quite mild, have chronic conditions that make me care about things in certain ways. I might not be this person yeah. without those experiences. So, you know, it's, that's, I, I know that's not exactly the same thing, but for me, um, it's related. Right? Yeah. Everything we are, our, our body, our relationships, everything kind of makes us us. And if you suddenly lacked that, would you still be the same person? If mm-hmm. you could suddenly, uh, if my brain were suddenly in the body of a um, muscle-bound, you know, mountain climber or Olympian or something, I would yeah. not be the same person, right? You know, in many respects, as I am as I am now. And so, um, but for I will say this: I I know for a fact that White believed you would be. Okay, we'll get back to our conversation with Dr. Scalacha here in just one second. But first, let's talk about the after party. Every Friday, Kimberly Johnson and I record a fourth podcast for the week. But this one's totally different from the usual Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday shows. The Friday After Party podcast is loaded with all the politics you want, while also including uncensored, completely obscene conversations about sex, drugs, movies, television, our personal lives. It's totally commercial-free. All the stuff we can't get away with on the free show. So please help support this podcast by subscribing to our Friday After Party for just $10 per month. And you're also going to get two post-mortem shows every week included in that level of support. That's bobseskashow.com or just click the all-caps Patreon link beneath the logo at bobseska.com. Thank you. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. The Bob Seska Show. So beyond the process of trying to transplant the soul, transplant the consciousness, transplant a body. Was there a practical application that motivated uh, Dr. White to dig into this subject area? Was there something that uh, was from his experience in life that Mm -hmm. said, oh, you know what, maybe if we had this technology, this would solve problems X, Y, and Z. Was there something beyond uh, just the uh, transplantation of the consciousness that uh, motivated Absolutely. Um, And that goes back to the original point about organ transplant. Mm -hmm. At one point, if you have failing kidneys, that that was it. There wasn't, you know, this is pre-dialysis, pre-kidney transplant. That was the end of your life. Um, If you had heart disease, that was the end of your life. You Mm -hmm. didn't have that. Now we have those capabilities. One of the things that White saw on a daily basis was trauma. He saw brain trauma Uh, He saw body trauma. He saw teenagers who had been hit by drunk drivers. He saw people who were otherwise healthy, whose bodies were dying because of cancer. He'd worked on a friend's brain, literally held a friend's brain in his hand. It couldn't save the man, Hmm. you know, and lost him and, and felt deeply those, those losses. So for him, he believed that um, those lives needed to be spared as much as possible. Yeah. And there's a great story in the book about a young man who had become paraplegic uh, due to an accident, and he, you know, White treated him. And one of the residency doctors was like, wow, I feel so so sorry for this person. He's not going to have any kind of life. And White was really upset. He's like, what do you mean he's not going to have any kind of life? Brain is life. He's, yeah. he's going to have life. And, and White was right. The man, he got married. He had kids. I mean, he was still paralyzed, but that didn't mean that his life was any worth any less worth living. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's ultimately his, his uh, 
relationship to his perfect patient, the Carl Vitovitz, who himself volunteered to potentially be the first head transplant, was a tetraplegic person whose organs had begun to fail and who felt like, what do we got to lose? Yeah, let's talk about Mr. Vetovitz because uh, this guy could have been the first human full-body transplant recipient, right? He finds Dr. White in 1998 or 1999, mm-hmm. and he's interested because he wanted an organ transplant. He just wanted a kidney transplant. Just the, You'll find out if you read the book, there's a lot of really beautiful circles in the book. Hmm. It starts off with a kidney transplant, and actually kidney transplant is what motivates Craig Vitovitz to look up Dr. White. His own kidneys had begun to fail, but because he was paralyzed, he wasn't considered a good candidate, and for him... He felt as though that was as though the medical establishment was basically telling him his life wasn't worth as much as an able-bodied person. So ableism, really. And he felt that was wrong. And why should, you know, he was married. He had his own business. He had a full life. He traveled. Why was his life not worth as much as someone else who needed a, a kidney transplant? So that he sought out Dr. White and the two men met and you know, began looking at how to turn this monkey surgery into a human protocol surgery and perform it on a human being, which is, you know, kind of mind-blowing. And I don't want to give too much away, but um, some interesting stuff happened as a result of that. (laughs) I can only imagine. I mean, had Dr. White's work advanced significantly from, let's say, 1971 through uh, when he met uh, Mr. Vetovitz in uh, the late 90s? Were there technological advances in the process that he had developed or was it kind of just a dead zone in that span of time? No, he, he had uh, managed to perfect it so much using, a, he built a machine so that he wasn't actually relying on another, um, like a, a body donor kind of situation. He wasn't relying on external blood transplant flow because mm-hmm. that was always a little tricky. So he built a mechanism and some other things to make this better. And he'd learned how to do it hot. In other words, without using the hypercooled brain, which also introduced some, um, you know, some unknowns to mm-hmm. the situation. So he had, uh, the other thing is he, he quite happily explained to people that a human head transplant would be much easier because humans are bigger yeah. <laughs> and working on monkeys is hard <laughs> because they're quite small. Yeah. So, oh, um, and-, and, and honestly, uh, you know, he got in a lot of trouble with PETA and other animal rights groups for his sure. work on animals. And so, um, and, and he was, he was fascinating. You guys, this man doesn't, he just was never wrong in his own mind, right? Hmm. He called himself Mr. Humble. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering where that came from. Yeah, that makes sense. Yes, that's his nickname. He was called by PETA, Dr. Butcher, but he referred to himself as Mr. Humble in a rather tongue-in-cheek kind of way. He flew to Moscow special class. They would stop the plane on the tarmac and let him get out and he'd be driven into town by you know, armed escort. I mean, he just, he had this life that was just huge. Hmm. It was bigger than everything. And he was such a practical joker as well. Like he would say some things and you think, is that real? (laughs) It might be real. His life is pretty strange. So um, yeah, he was a fascinating person. Hmm. And it's not surprising to me that he decided that, you know, his life's work wouldn't just be about perfecting these surgeries, which we still use all the time, every day but also a quest to prove one of the more long-standing questions of our entire human race, which is, where is the self? Yeah. What is the self? Can you quantify it? Is it located somewhere? You know, no. you have, uh, I think it's Rene Descartes thinks it's in the pituitary gland back in the 18th century, right? So um, <laughs> setting yourself kind of a high bar, yeah. right? That's a big task. And he felt that he, was, he, he considered himself a kind of brain astronaut, because he felt that the inner space of the brain was a greater place to explore with more unknowns than the outer space that we were sending rocket ships to. In your estimation, it seems like the biggest hurdle in all of this is the severed spinal cord, right? How do you repair a severed spinal cord? And to reattach a severed spinal cord is like the holy grail of the entire process. How close are we to being able to repair something like that? Well, it's interesting. Um, What we've come a long way towards is repair, is is, um, stopping some of the worst damage from happening in the first place. One of the things that they discovered is that when you have damage to your spinal cord, often the damage itself 
isn't the worst thing. It's the swelling and also a kind of cascade of cell death that hmm. happens. The cells that have been damaged send out almost like a suicide signal to the ones around them. And that with the swelling is what ultimately caused the worsening of paralysis. So one of the things we've gotten much better at is figuring out ways to stop that using hypercooling helps. Um, they've been experimenting with polyethylene glycol mm -hmm. as a way of kind of um, binding things up so that they don't send those death signals out. And that's been really useful. The, and when an, a, a, an injury like that is prohibited from being the worst it could be, they've also discovered, I talk about this in the book, it's called BrainGate, and there's a couple other, um, it's, it's uh, intraneural, they're um, functional electrical stimulation. They're stimulating the muscles directly. Mm -hmm rather than waiting for your spinal cord to talk to them. But what they've discovered is as the muscles are stimulated, they're sending signals back up the chain, and sometimes they're recovering some of that motion. And so it's been really fascinating to figure out um, how to help the body heal. But when it comes to a fully severed spinal cord, you just don't fix that. Mm -hmm. um, if you completely sever a spinal cord, that's pretty much it. There's people saying that they think that they can, but I have never in all the research I've done, seen anything that suggests we're even remotely close yeah. to uh, fixing a severed spinal cord. We are potentially getting close to skipping the spinal cord. Bypassing it, yeah. Um, bypassing it, yeah. And that's where they are literally hooking people's brains up directly to their muscles using computers and things like that. And um, that's a lot harder <laughs> than it sounds. Mm -hmm. It turns out to move your fingers and hands is like a, such a huge amount of brain cells doing different things. And we're not great at replicating that, but we're getting a lot better. So um, I suspect the, the future of paralysis might be in skipping those severed spinal cords. I don't think that we're ever going to get to a place where you can reattach them. Interesting. See, see, I would have thought that stem cells would have been the route toward a, a more rapid advancement into that, uh, that solution. Is there, that there a is thing research. at all or no? There definitely is. Yeah. There is research and there, um, some of the people pursuing it are, um, Oh, I've forgotten the name. I think, uh, Dr. Ren in China is one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, there, there are people who are interested in that possibility yeah but um for for i i stem cells are tricky and uh i that's actually the subject of my next book but um stem cells are tricky and they aren't as easy to direct so for my money i think we're probably going to end up skipping or bypassing and and that's going to become more practical long before we get to a place where we can get maybe we'll get there eventually but i i strongly suspect that you're going to see the first thing happen uh, mm -hmm. long before any of that becomes viable. I could be proven wrong, um, and I'd be happy to be proven wrong. <laughs> but uh, but from what I've read, I, I think we're probably going to see more of the technological advancements before we see the, the, the biological ones. This is a, more of a conceptual question, Brandy. Is there a layer of hope that emerges from the study of like bizarre medical experiments. I mean, the quest for immortality through medicine seems like it's partly driven by curiosity, but also by a need for uh, uh, possible ways to overcome our mortality. We're all in, in some way consumed by the fact that we're eventually going to die. And maybe some of this stuff gives us hope that, oh, maybe before that happens, there'll be this other experiment and it'll happen and uh, we'll be able to find a way around that mortality. Um, well, see, now you have to go back and read my other two books. Okay. Uh, the, <laughs> um, the first one is called Death's Summer Code. That's specifically talking about our approach to death and, and grief and mm -hmm. immortality and how science gets involved in that. And the second one is maybe even a better answer to your question. Uh, it's called Clockwork Futures, and it's about, well, it's about dread tech. It's about the fact that our tech uh, has two sides, right? Um, Paul Virilio is a theorist of accidents. There is such a thing. I know they're French. Um, and he, he said that the invention of the plane is also the invention of the plane crash. And this is true. All of our technology is also the invention of its own destruction and its own catastrophe. So the way I, I tend to look at it is um, science and our, our movement towards a scientific future, our search for health, for immortality, for all of the things, you know, for, for, um, for legacy – is more like a yin and yang because there's all of this hope, this this wondrous uh, sense that there's a kind of Star Trek future where we will be able to get beyond uh, a lot of our our 
our struggles that we have now, that these will be things, that cancer will be a thing of the past, yeah. that all of these other things will, will be, you know, somewhere behind us. And we'll have stepped into a future where we have these great bodies that we can keep going for a long time. But with that are all the other science fiction stories you can think of where everything is terrible. Yeah. Um, because let's face it, the technology outstrips our ability to comprehend its consequences. Mm -hmm. So yes, I think there's hope, but I think more often I tend to look at science as um, a built-in hope cautionary tail machine yeah. where it's uh, it's an Ouroboros swallowing its own tail and you're constantly sort of, you know, rising up with hope and then, you know, finding out what the consequences are on the other side of that, um, of which radium is a really, uh, a really good example. Mm -hmm. like, oh, oh my God. Yes. Future juice. Yeah. Oh, it gave us cancer. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and we sit here and we laugh and we kind of point and it's kind of titillating <laughs> to talk about, uh, from an outside perspective, kind of these wacky experiments, uh, with head transplants and monkeys and dogs and so on. But at the same time, the end game of all of that, the, the results in the long term could significantly improve the quality of life for so many people who suffer from, uh, you know, a wide range of physical abnormalities and so on, things that they have to deal with. And so in a oh, sense, it starts out as being like, oh, my God, I can't believe they did this to, oh, my God, I'm so glad they did this. It, it is. And I think one of the, the tricks, because, of course, like I, I mentioned, my, my father's own surgery, you know, I wouldn't have him without some of the things that Dr. White invented mm -hmm. on his way towards head transplant. Um, I think the questions we always have to, to ask ourselves is, um, are we making sure we're not abdicating responsibility for the ethics of those decisions? You know, yeah, are we yeah. so excited about the outcome that we forget to look and see how we got there? Um, is, is important. And so uh, I think there's so much to gain. If you read the book, I hope you read the book. Um, there's so much to gain from these outliers, from these people who are willing to push the boundaries of science. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think we should. At the same time, we have to make sure that there are ethics in place so that we aren't giving the power of those decisions to someone else. Yeah, that makes so much sense. The book is called Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher. This is a, a must read. You know, I'm envisioning people sitting on the beach this summer after you know emerging from <laughs> quarantine. All kinds of people sitting on the beach reading this book, and you can just hear echoes of people going, oh my God, while they're sitting <laughs> looking through it. It is available. This book is available everywhere you get your books. Links in the description under this episode at bobsuska.com. Brandy, it was a super creepy pleasure to talk with you today, even though I'm going to have nightmares <laughs> for a few weeks, but it was absolutely <laughs> worth it. Thank you again for your time. I appreciate it so much. I'm so glad I could be here. Thanks again. Take care. Bye. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.